Let's open our Bibles now to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Actually, we'll be introducing it, at least introducing verses 16 and 17. We might not finish this tonight. It may take two weeks to do it, um, but then again, we might. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, you all know what these verses say. The verses read, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. These are two of the more well-known verses in all the Pauline epistles. In fact, most of you have memorized these verses, and with good reason. They are a strong exhortation to learn and to apply the Word of God to every aspect of our lives. They teach us that the Word of God is that which is ultimately profitable for our growth and our production of fruit, our production of good works that will glorify God. Throughout chapter 3, Paul has been warning Timothy that the task that he faces will be a challenging one. He has the responsibility to stand for and proclaim the truth in an environment that will not always be friendly. Not only must he stand firm in the truth, but he must also do so in the proper manner. When difficult times come for Timothy, he is to remember that the scriptures are where he will find answers to life's problems. Too many times when believers face troubles, heartaches, and are in the midst of pain, they seek answers outside of God's own gracious self-disclosure. They, they drive to the local Barnes & Noble, find their way to the self-help or the pop psychology aisle and seek answers to life's dilemmas there. Or they stay home and turn on the television to perhaps Dr. Phil or, or Oprah or one of the other programs where maybe life's, answers to life's problems are, are promoted in those shows. But there's a better place to look. There's a better book to have. In fact, the book that has the answers to all life's problems, you probably already own. I certainly hope if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you do. All Scripture is inspired by God. The phrase pasagraphe here in the Greek could be better translated every Scripture. The difference, admittedly, is subtle, but it is important. All Scripture can be taken in English to mean the entirety of the, New, of the Old Testament, rather, and may imply what it shouldn't, or perhaps a little more than it should. Dr. Will Johnson of Dallas Theological Seminary, a New Testament professor there, also a friend of ours and a member of our church, has written an outstanding scholarly work on this particular phrase and comes to the conclusion here that Paul is not speaking so much of the Old Testament as a unified whole, but rather each individual part. Paul allows here for the possibility that not every verse of the Old Testament is equally useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness at any given moment in the outworking of human history. But that all the Old Testament is equally inspired. I know I just got everybody's attention when I said that. So, so I, and, I, and I don't want you to pay half, half attention tonight, particularly to this first part, and then leave thinking that I said something that I didn't. So if you only got five minutes worth of attention, pay it now, okay? 
all Scripture, all Scripture is equally from God. But not all Scripture is equally as beneficial for any given individual at any given moment of history for teaching, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. I said something like this years ago in a class at Houston Bible Institute and just about had my head handed to me by both the class and the professor. They took it that I was putting down the authority of Scripture and promoting something like a pick-and-choose system of biblical obedience, which they rightfully would have deemed blasphemous if that was actually what I was saying. But nothing could have been further from my intentions. At that point, when they did that, I wondered aloud if the class had ever read the Old Testament, which went over so well that... uh, And as you can imagine, I was immediately elected the most popular student and the most likely to succeed by voice vote right right then and there. But I think that the point that I'm trying to make is, is fairly easily demonstrated if we take just a moment and look at a couple of Old Testament passages. So I'd like to do that. Then we'll return to first uh, to rather to Second Timothy. First, let's look at First Chronicles chapter five. First Chronicles chapter five. And what I'm demonstrating by these passages is that all Scripture, every, every aspect of Scripture is equally inspired of God. It's equally authoritative. It's equally inerrant. But not all Scripture is going to be equally as beneficial to you at any particular moment of your life. Or perhaps, another way to put that is some Scriptures were, were more pertinent, more valid to people who lived, for example, in the age of Israel than they would be in the age of the church, while at the same time, it still has validity for us. But maybe not the same degree of validity. Let me illustrate. I think it's the easiest way to do it. From First Chronicles chapter 5. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was first... I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 6. It's going to be the same thing, but I haven't practiced the, uh, how to pronounce the names in chapter 5, and it is brutal. <laughs> Those of you that are doing the reading of the one-year Bible know exactly what I'm talking about. Let's go to chapter 6. I have at least practiced these names for you. The sons of Levi were Gershon, Kohath, Merai, and the sons of Kohath were Amram, Ishar, Hebron, Uziel, and the children of Amram were Aaron, Moses, Miriam, and the sons of Aaron were Nabab, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar. Eleazar became the father of Phinehas, and Phinehas became the father of Abishua, and Abishua became the father of Buki, and Buki became the father of Uzi, and Uzi became the father... Okay, do I need to go any further? You're, now, again, I'm not in any way, I want you to watch, I'm not in any way diminishing the fact that these words have been inspired by God. I'm not in any way diminishing the fact that they are profitable. But let's look at another passage, again from Chronicles, the second part of it. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Verses 35 through 37, a a, a bit of a different genre here, a slightly different genre. Now, it came about that after this, the sons of Moab and the sons of Amnon, together with some of the Minuites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazar Tamar, that is, in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek help from the Lord. Now let's go to verse 35. 
After this, this is toward the end of this ordeal, after this, Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, allied himself with Azahiah, king of Israel. He acted wickedly in, in doing so. So he allied himself with him to make ships to go to Tarshish, and they made ships in Ezion, Geber. Then Eliezer, son of Donavu of Marashai, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Azahiah, the Lord has destroyed your works. So the ships were broken and could not go to Tarshish. Now, on first glance, on first glance, you may look at the First Chronicles chapter 6 passage and say, What could I ever get out of that as a believer? Now, on second glance, there is something from that passage that you could glean. If, if certainly, if, certainly if you were an Israelite, you would see as they were coming back out of the Babylonian captivity, it was important for them to realize that God had been faithful. And so these, these, uh, these, these uh, genealogies were given. Now, this passage in Second Chronicles, chapter 20, both the, both the beginning compared with the end, 35 through 37, is showing us that Jehoshaphat made a bad decision. And he chose against God, and therefore God wouldn't honor his bad decision. You see, even within the scope of First Chronicles and Second Chronicles, the second passage may be a little bit more useful for us for reproof for correction. Both are useful, but I'm talking about a degree of usefulness at a particular moment in history. But sticking with the Old Testament, let's go to Isaiah chapter 53, a passage that you know well, a passage that is quoted in, Hebrew, in the New Testament quite often. And we don't need to cover the whole thing. You've, you've read it many, many times. But let's begin at verse 4 in Isaiah chapter 53, speaking, of course, of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. Words that have been quoted more than once in the New Testament. All of the passages that I just quoted to you, all of them, and, and, and please get this, all of them are inspired by God. Every single one of them. All are equally the word of God and can be profitable for moving one toward maturity. The entirety of the Word of God should be taught to and learned by every believer. The J. Vernon McGee model, where he went from Genesis to Revelation, that is the proper model for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. But objectively, not all are equally profitable to each individual at all points in the outworking of God's purpose. Once again, this is in no way diminishing the authority, inerrancy, or the inspiration of Scripture. There are certain aspects of the Mosaic Law, the ceremonial aspects, that had specific application to a specific people at a specific time. We can learn some things from that, to be sure, but we, we are not under the Mosaic Law. And so when they, when they talk about certain of the ceremonial aspects, certain of the, certain of the high, aspects of hygiene in the Mosaic Law that we're not under at this particular time, we can learn something about God's specificity, something about God seeking to make Israel a peculiar people unto her, unto her neighbors. But that would have been more beneficial for reproof or correction for them than it would be for us. I hope you see the point. We, we, we kind of made light of it, but there in no way am I diminishing the authority of Scripture when I say this. All of them are equally inspired by God. 
The passage says then, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Every scripture is God-breathed. Or perhaps, every scripture is inspired by God. Inspiration is necessary to preserve the revelation of God. If God has revealed himself, but the record of that revelation is not accurately recorded, then the revelation of God is subject to question. Hence, inspiration guarantees the accuracy of revelation. This is a, admittedly a heavy theological point, but it's one that's very important, and I want to spend some time on it tonight, this doctrine of inspiration. First, let's define what inspiration means. Inspiration may be defined as the Holy Spirit's superintending over the writers of Scripture so that while writing, according to their own styles and personalities, the result was God's written word, authoritative, trustworthy, and free from error in the original autographs. I can certainly tell you, Will, Will can tell you as well, you, you can read certain New Testament literature and after you've read it enough, you can tell this was written by Luke. Or this was most likely written by Paul. Or this was mostly written by Peter. They all had, all had their different styles. They all had different terms that they liked to use, perhaps more than others. Uh, they had different levels of, uh, well, probably intelligence, but certainly education. Uh, Paul and Luke had more classical education. And you can see that in, their, in the way they put their New Testament Greek together. But it's all equally inspired of the, uh, by the Holy Spirit. It's equally as true. The God the Holy Spirit didn't cause Paul to set aside his personality, his intellect, his education, when he worked through him to give us the Word of God. B.B. Warfield, the great Christian theologian, ins- uh, defined inspiration this way. He said, inspiration is, therefore usually defined as a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. My favorite definition comes from Charles Ryrie. He said, inspiration is God's superintendence of the human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error his revelation to man in the words of the original autographs. There are several important elements in coming up with a definition of inspiration. And by inspiration, we're not talking about being inspiring. <laughs> we're not talking about giving a motivational speech. We're talking about God, God's inspiration to that writer of Scripture to write down what his, what his uh, thoughts and down to the very words were for us. There's going to be a divine element in any good definition of inspiration. God the Holy Spirit is the member of the Trinity that participated in this act, ensuring the accuracy of the writers. There's also a human element, though. Human authors wrote according to their individual styles, their personalities, their educational levels, their intellect. The result of the human divine authorship is the recording of truth without error. We are very we strong. We stand very strongly at Pine Valley for the inerrancy of Scripture. At the Chicago meeting in October 1978, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy issued the following statement on inerrancy, meaning the Bible is without error. This is what they said: being wholly and verbally given, 
Scripture is without error or fault in all of its teaching, no less than what it says about God's acts in creation, about the events of world history, and about its own literary origins under God, than its witness to God's saving grace in individual lives. This is something that I know you take for granted, but not everybody does. There are some that would say that the Scriptures are without error in all that they affirm about our spiritual lives, or perhaps in all that they affirm about our salvation. But when it comes to science, certainly it can have error. When it comes to history, of course it could have error. Well, I couldn't disagree more with that. When it comes to science, it is without error. When it comes to history, it is without error. And I don't know how many times archaeology has to be proven wrong by later discoveries or historians have to be proven wrong by later discoveries before they're going to get that. Even when I was in seminary, one of the great archaeological discoveries of the time was an inscription found with the, with the name King David on it. Before that, some archaeologists and historians felt like David was a mythical figure, wasn't even a real person. But, oh, guess what? They found out he was after all. Well, we could have told them that for the last 3,000 years if they would have listened. You see, the Scripture is without error in all that it affirms. Okay? It has the divine origin. If it was a man that, if it was a book that men merely wrote, of course it would have error. But it is not a book that is simply of human origin. It is of divine origin. Fourth, inspiration extends to the selection of the words by the writers. And fifth, inspiration always refers to the original manuscripts. It refers to the original manuscripts. We don't have the original manuscripts. But we have a very reliable text. Sometimes people will tell you that there are hundreds of thousands of, of textual variants in the Bible. And that is true. I'm not sure of the specific number. Will could probably have it off the top of his head. But, but the specific number is not important. The important thing is that there is no textual variant in the New Testament. There is no textual variant in the New Testament that impacts any major area of theology whatsoever. Whatsoever. You have a reliable Bible in front of you. Every now and then, a pastor or a theologian might stand before you and tweak a word. That's, that's legit, because we're tweaking a translation. But you have a reliable Bible in front of you. The English word inspiration, in its theological usage, is derived from the Latin Vulgate Bible, in which the, the word inspiro appears both in 2 Timothy 3.16 and in 2 Peter 1.21. The word inspiration is used to translate a Greek word, theonoustos, which is what we call in Greek a hapax legomena, meaning it's, it's the only time it occurs in the Bible. It's right here. It's found only in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Second, 2 Timothy 3, 16, translated either inspired or, or God-breathed, emphasizes the exhalation of God, not the inhalation but the exhalation of God through a human author. The scriptures are not something that are breathed into by God. The scriptures have been breathed out by God. Again, I know we're making very subtle distinctions tonight, but these subtle distinctions are very important. It's not as though human authors wrote all this down, and then God breathed upon it, giving it a divine seal of approval. God breathed into those who were writing it down, you see, so it's a process of a big A author 
the, the, the Holy Spirit and a little author, the human writers. Theologically, we speak of a term, verbal plenary inspiration. I don't want that term to intimidate you, but you should have heard it before at some point in time in your life. Verbal plenary inspiration. It simply means that the very words, not merely the ideas or the thoughts of Scripture, but the very words of Scripture are inspired by God. That's the verbal inspiration part. The plenary inspiration means that every single word is inspired by God. In fact, we'll see when we talk about Christ's view of verbal plenary inspiration, that the very letters are inspired by God. Every single spelling was inspired by God. The whole thing. So the next time you hear the term verbal plenary inspiration, don't be intimidated by it. That's all it means. It means the words of Scripture were inspired by God, and every single word in Scripture was inspired by God. So if you didn't learn anything else tonight, you can, you can learn not to be intimidated by that term anymore. With regard to the nature of biblical inspiration, nothing could be more important, than I, I believe, than our Lord's view of inspiration. We can tell a lot about the Scriptures and inspiration from looking at what He held about inspiration. I would hope that no believer in the Lord Jesus Christ would ever hold a lower view of inspiration than Jesus Christ did. If we were smart, we would hold the same view of inspiration than he did. So let's take a look at a few things that Jesus Christ held with regard to the inspiration of the Bible. First, he held to the inspiration of the whole, the entirety of it. In his use of the Old Testament, he gave credence to the inspiration of the entire Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Christ affirmed that not even the smallest letter or stroke would pass away from the law until it would be fulfilled. He believed in not only verbal, but plenary inspiration. Every single letter was inspired. He referred to the law, or the prophets, a common phrase designating the Old Testament. In this rather strong statement, Jesus affirmed the inviolability of the entire Old Testament, and therefore affirmed the inspiration of the entire Old Testament. So the first aspect of our understanding of Jesus' view of Scripture is that it is all inspired, the whole thing. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, Jesus reminded the disciples that all the things written about him in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The disciples had failed to understand the teachings concerning the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, but because of the inspiration of the Old Testament, those prophesied events had to take place. If God said it was going to take place, they had to take place. By his threefold designation of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, Christ was affirming the inspiration and authority again of the entire Old Testament. But Christ also affirmed the authority of the parts of the Old Testament. He quoted from the Old Testament profusely, frequently. His argument tends then on the integrity of the Old Testament passage. He was quoting if, if, if Christ was on the Supreme Court of the United States, he would be an originalist. He quoted them in their context with, with, the, with the original author's intended meaning in view. Of course, his co-member of the Trinity was the original author, so he was very well aware of what the meaning was, but he quoted it with the author's intended meaning in view. 
by using this method of argumentation, Christ is affirming the inspiration of individual texts or books of the Old Testament. For, for example, you remember when Jesus encounters Satan at his temptation? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy, indicating that Satan is wrong in emphasizing the way that he was using those particular terms. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 42, verse 42, Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, 22, which teaches that the Messiah would be rejected. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus quoted from Isaiah 42, showing that his peaceable, gentle disposition and his inclusion of the Gentiles had been foretold in prophetic writings. So he also says that each individual part is inspired. The whole is inspired, verbal, plenary, inspiration. The, entire is ins- the entirety of it is inspired, and each individual word is inspired. I-, I hope if you didn't already, and I know most of you have already, I hope that by the time we finish our study tonight, you'll have a high view of Scripture. Too much of the church today takes a low view of Scripture. It's something that is thrown in. It's thrown in in youth groups. This is where I I see it as much as anywhere else. Youth groups get together. They they try to gather as many kids as they can get together and go play basketball or dodgeball or go bowling or or whatever they may do. But the, the primary activity is entertainment. And the secondary activity, thrown in almost in a bait and switch way, is a little Bible teaching. I've told Dan Dan Enright, who's our new director of student ministries, and we both agree totally with this, and that is that our focus in student ministries should be the same focus we have in in these uh, older adult ministries. That's what we are, I guess. And that that is the word first. The word first. You, You hold in your lap right now. God's complete and total self-disclosure to mankind. What you hold in your your lap, Moses never had. Elijah never had it. Isaiah never had it. They long to see the day that we have God's complete message in our lap. There is no problem that you can have that the answer is not in here. You say, well, yeah, there is. Nothing nothing about speeding in the school zone in here. Yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. There's something in principle about doing that. There's something about every single issue that can come up in your life in this book. Listen, I, I, think, I, I think he's a cute little snuggly teddy bear too, but you don't need Dr. Phil. You really don't. You, you've got it right here, and it's in your lap. It's living, and it's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and we take it for granted. Oh, don't we? We take it for granted. Instead of spending 30 minutes with it in the evening, we turn on Seinfeld and spend 30 minutes with him. You have something that's very powerful. You have something that is inspired by God sitting in your lap. Jesus also thought that the very words were inspired. He, he quotes from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, when speaking to the Sadducees. He says, I am the God of Abraham. And this response Jesus' entire argument hinges on the words, I am, there. Which, actually, he's apparently supplying a verb that's not there in that Hebrew text. Um, This implies that 
well, it doesn't imply it, there's more than that. This, this gives some credence to at least that, tra- that aspect of the translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, known as the Septuagint, the Greek translation. Many of the writers of Scripture used the Septuagint. Another question I asked one time in a class way back, almost, I guess, 20 years ago now at Houston Bible Institute, was uh, I asked the professor, was the, is there anybody that might consider that the Septuagint was inspired? In other words, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And several of my classmates laughed, and, and the professor said, no, no, actually that's a legitimate question, because, because nobody really would hold that the Septuagint was inspired, but certainly Christ gave it credence when he quoted from it as authoritative. So, um, for what it's worth. But the very, the very words are inspired. Jesus for the sake of time, I won't go through some of the other ones, but Jesus makes a point of, the, 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 of plenary inspiration as well. Even down to the letters, in a number of his statements, Christ reveals that he believed that the very letters of Scripture were inspired. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, Jesus declared, declared that not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter in Hebrew is a, is a yod. It's just a little tiny mark. It looks like an apostrophe. Not even that's going to be taken away until everything has been fulfilled. Every single aspect, every single tiny little part of a letter. In, in English, we have something similar to like this. We have the, a, a, an O and we have a Q. And if, if this was English and Jesus was talking about it, he'd say, not even that little mark right there is going to pass away until all these things have been fulfilled. Okay? It's that important. And I know tonight, because you're out here on a Wednesday night and had to fight traffic and fatigue and hunger and, and no telling what else you had to fight to get here tonight. I know in one sense, to use religious terminology, I'm preaching to the choir. I know that you know the importance of the Word of God, but I want to remind you of it so that you never forget it. You never forget what you're holding in your lap. Jesus also indicated that the New Testament, which hadn't been written at the time that he was here, of course, but that it would be inspired. We studied that just a bit in John chapter 14, verse 26, compared to John 16, verses 12 through 15, which we haven't gotten to yet. But here he says that even after I go, the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to help you to recall everything that I said. Paul seemed to understand that his writings were going to be Scripture when he writes them. Peter certainly understood that Paul's writings were Scripture, even while Peter is still alive, makes a statement as such in one of his letters. But the idea is that Christ held a very high view of Scripture. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should hold nothing less than that. He believed in verbal, plenary inspiration. Now let's go back to the passage again. Again, it's very familiar to you, I know. All Scripture, or perhaps better, every Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training, or for instruction in righteousness. We've already said that not necessarily every aspect, in this case of Hebrew Bible, is equally as profitable but they're all profitable in a sense. But all Scripture, or every Scripture, is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching. You need to learn it first for reproof and for correction. Reproof is the negative side of it. Correction is the positive side of it. 
You know, Francis Schaeffer used to say that it is really an act of cruelty to tear down someone's worldview without at the same time being prepared to lift them up with the correct worldview. It's, it's not an act of kindness and love just to tear someone's thought patterns down. You need to be standing there right by them with love to build them back up. It's, it doesn't make much sense to just tell your child what not to do, does it? If you're not going to be standing right by them to lovingly tell them what the correct behavior would be. The scriptures do that for us. It instructs us in the way. It reproves us. It tells us when we're doing something wrong. And then it instructs us in how to do it right. For training in righteousness. The scriptures tell us that our responsibility is to be holy as God is holy. Well, how are we going to even know what holiness is if we're not taught that? But the scriptures are sufficient. That was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. That we don't, need the, we don't need faith plus anything else in order to get to heaven. You don't need the scriptures plus anything else to achieve maturity in the Christian life. I don't want to be misunderstood here. I'm not saying that there aren't times perhaps when you need a, uh, because of certain issues, you may need uh, medical help with biochemistry that takes, that can, biochemical imbalances that can take place in the body. Certain disease processes make it more difficult for you to, to avoid depression and, and such. Just at a very basic level, if tonight, if tonight you have a problem with your adrenal glands and they're fatigued over from years of abuse with coffee or soda pops or whatever it may be, or stress, and you didn't eat anything before you came tonight, it's going to be much more difficult for you to concentrate because the, the adrenals are designed to pull some of that glycogen from the liver and keep your blood sugar, sugar at a steady level. So if you've got blood sugar problems, you, you may get depressed more easily because once the blood sugar drops below a certain level, depression sets in. So, so I'm not saying you can go to a particular verse and solve your blood, blood sugar problem. That's, that's something you need. Maybe you need to eat something. But I'm talking about the real problems of life. How do I handle my marriage? How do I decide who to marry in the first place? How am I going to handle my neighbor? Those kind of things are found right here. We don't need Dr. Phil for those. And I think he's cute, too, in, in a, as much as I can think any guy is cute. But, I mean, that's as far as he goes. I mean, I certainly wouldn't look at him for weight loss. I mean, he did this big weight loss book. I'm thinking, I'm not buying that one. I'm buying somebody's skinny person's weight loss book. Well, I'm going to buy one. And I bought a couple of them, but not his. That the man of God might be adequate, equipped, or perhaps better, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You have everything you need right here. I'm not just making that up. That's the testimony of the inspired Word of God. You've got everything you need right here to grow to Christian maturity. Everything's right here. The Scriptures are sufficient to take you where you need to go. And remember, remember the circumstance under which this was written. Timothy is about to engage in, in a more difficult ministry even than he's already had. His friend and partner in ministry, Paul, is about to be executed. He's not going to be there anymore for Timothy to lean on. And there's going to, there's going to be a time where Timothy's got to grow up. And one of the things that Paul is telling Timothy as part of his growing up process is, You've already had the scriptures. You had them from the time you were a young kid. You had, you had great teachers. He wasn't being arrogant, but, but Paul was one of them. You had your grandmother and your mother. These people taught you the word. Now use it. I'm not going to be here 
for you to call and ask. You're not going to be able to email me or text mail me. You're going to have to get back in the text yourself. All of us have known people that, that we leaned on spiritually. That we might call them a mentor or a teacher or something. And all of us have maybe wondered, well, I wonder what would happen to my spiritual life if that particular fellow was not here anymore. Well, if you're, if you're leaning too hard on that particular fellow, then you are going to fall apart. But if that particular fellow has taught you rightly, and I, and I think the people that have come before me that have been influential in your lives, I think they've done that. I really do. To, and have taught you that it's not them. It's the, the Word of God that's living. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing even through the dividing asunder of the soul and the spirit, the joints of the marrow. The marrow. All Scripture is God-breathed. Every Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, for teaching, for instruction in righteousness, for reproof, for correction, that the man of God might be perfectly adequate or even mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You hold in your hand something very, very powerful. Don't ever, ever take it for granted.